life of fulfillment starts with understanding your values. And when you know what truly motivates you, you can accomplish extraordinary things. Welcome to the Discover Your Values podcast, where each week we hear unique perspectives on human values with leaders who inspire us to explore the depth of our potential. Now, here's your host, Jacob J. everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Dominic Reichel. He's a cognitive scientist and philosopher. He's also the author of mindcoolness.com. It's a public meditation of interesting things where he writes about ethics, metapolitics, philosophy, spirituality, psychology, cognitive science, masculinity, and self-improvement. He's the author of the book, Willpower Condense, Master Self-Discipline to Your True Will. Dominic, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I invited Dominic onto the show because I stumbled across his blog several months ago, and it really is a wonderful meditation of of many interesting things. And he'd written some about Dr. Schwartz and values. And for our listeners, you know that that is the framework that our program is based on. And so I wanted to reach out to Dominic to have a deeper conversation about the work that he's doing and with his blog and some of his other initiatives and also talk a little bit about values. Dominic, can you give us just a high level overview? Tell us a little bit more about you and, and some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, so my academic background is in philosophy and cognitive science. And after college, I took a few months off to pursue personal projects. And the main project there was my book, Willpower Condensed. And then I figured I really have no marketing experience or anything like that. So I thought I'd just start a blog and write about topics similar to my book in order to build up somewhat of an audience and find readers for my book. And then this turned into a much greater project. And then I also produced the Mindfulness podcast. And... I did this for two and a half years, and now my interests have shifted again, and currently I'm working as a data scientist. Wow, that's wonderful. How did you discover all of these topics? Like, how did you, you know, cognitive science, philosophy, and now data science, like, how did all of this start for you? I started actually when I was 14 years old, and I read my first Nietzsche book, so Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher. And he wrote a lot about life philosophy and especially values. And he always talked about yet destroying the quote-unquote old tables. So getting rid of, of old values and building new ones to become a creator of one's own values. And then I just read everything written by Nietzsche. This just motivated me so much to study philosophy at the university. And then I learned that philosophy is just very impractical and you can't really do anything with it in real life. And so I pursued my other interest in science. And that's when I got into the cognitive sciences and studied that. What's been your greatest success with all of the projects that you've been working on? So there hasn't really been this one incredible success. Everything has been building up very slowly and steadily. But in terms of maybe single pages that are quite popular. This is, um, I've written one, I have a blog post on YouTube addiction. 
And this is by far the most visited blog post on my site. It seems like a lot of people, especially young people, are really struggling with that. And then, of course, the values quiz, so which is based on the 10 value dimensions by Professor Schwartz. And this is just a very popular quiz, not really any scientific validity to it. And it's also expressed in quite crude, with quite crude vocabulary. But that also was very popular because it's just 20 questions or so, and people get like percentages of how far, how high they rank along several, uh, along the various value dimensions. And that has been really popular as well. That's cool. So I actually want to talk about this topic of uh, YouTube addiction, because this was something that was crossing my mind the other day around how people get sucked into YouTube and it's like hours on end, but it, that's one piece of it. And then another piece is some of the types of content that I think are probably not very healthy on the psyche. And I'll give you an example. You know, a lot of kids you'll hear that today say they want to be an influencer. I think I had my, my nephew ask my sister when I was home for the holidays, he wanted, he wants a YouTube account and he's five years old. Like he wants to produce content. And I thought, wow, I was like, I don't know. I, I know YouTube didn't exist when I was his age, but it would have never occurred to me that I wanted to have something like that or similar to that at my age or at his age. And so this idea of YouTube is also a job. I can be an influencer. But there's also something about it too where people or a small number of people in, achieve kind of influencer status on YouTube and they become wildly successful, famous, popular, and many of them wealthy. Or they've got a decent income in order to make you know a living, though there are many on there that are doing incredibly well. And some of it, if you look at some of the channels, it's just like a complete display of like gross wealth. And it's really interesting to me because it's it's almost setting kind of this idea that, you know, that this is somewhat normal for a lot of people. And yet I think it could be damaging to some extent too, where people are seeing some of these lifestyles that are that are not obtainable for the average, probably for the average person. And I was counting the other day just like how many YouTube channels, you know, are about this influencer life and it's kind of like lifestyles of the rich and famous. And yet it it's not real for most people. And and what that must do for someone that's watching that all the time, thinking, I wish I had that or I don't have that. So I think there's like a number of things going on with YouTube. Question, are these, these kind of lifestyle channels, is it just one among the thousands of categories on YouTube or is this becoming a very strong trend recently? Because I'm not really aware of, of these kind of, of videos where you just watch people being rich and it sounds like more like rap, rap videos to me. So. <laughs> it is. It's exactly that. It's watching people be rich. Is <laughs> what it is. And so it's not just like one channel. I mean, there there are dozens of these, and there are people that are just kind of flaunting extravagance and wealth. And if you read the comments on some of these, there's this 
level of inadequacy that pe- a lot of people feel because humans by nature love to compare each other, you know, to, to people. But there are many of these types of channels on YouTube that are really just, as you say, watching people get rich. And it's just, a, it's an interesting thing. And I don't know that it, the abundance of that on YouTube is is healthy for the masses. But to your point earlier, and I know I digressed here, the YouTube phenomenon is has a number I, of, of challenges to it, I think. But on the other hand, isn't that just the same as it was with TV in earlier times? I mean, don't you even have these, uh, how do you call it, Kardashians or so in, in the US, which are all just famous for being famous? And I think that it's just transitioning from TV into uh, YouTube. And uh, yeah, there will probably always be a demand for that. It's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. The Kardashians perhaps maybe really brought this idea of let's watch our rich lives for the sake of watching rich lives, you know, kind of into this mainstream. But it has always, it has always been on TV, you know, to some extent. But I think the popularity of, of such shows is just that we're living in such uh, an affluent society where everything is working out so, so optimally almost that, that we don't have really many serious problems to worry about. And then we just, then the problem just becomes comparing oneself to the ridiculous wealth of other people. What's your make of comparison? Because I see it a lot. I talk to a lot of people that do it all the time and it, it is not healthy for a lot of people. Well, I think we can't really come, uh, escape social comparisons because it's just in our human nature. I think the important thing is to what do you want or to whom do you want to compare yourself to? And also, what does it mean for you psychologically? So are you getting anxious when you compare yourself to someone else? Or are you becoming inspired to actually achieve th- something great? Because if you're for example, work as, as a mathematician and you just start out working in that field, then I think it's healthy to compare yourself to highly achieved mathematicians who are much older than you and look up to them and get inspiration from that. So that is one kind of social comparison that I think is healthy. But of course, that's just one aspect of it. Many other social comparisons where you, especially when it comes to comparing how wealthy I am with compared to how wealthy someone else is. But I think that acts really much as a distraction from, from more important things for many people. So let's talk about values for a minute, if we can pivot, because I, you have put together this wonderful article on your blog and, and kind of a great elaboration of some of Dr. Schwartz's work, and you kind of created this assessment that's been popular. What do values mean for you? Maybe we should start out by defining what a value is because there's, so that we're not too ambiguous here. I think in general, it's, it's kind of an abstract socio-mental construct that, that guides collective and individual judgment as well as behavior, of course. And maybe more simply put, it's actually a statement of the form X is good. So... When I, when I say that I value honesty, that's just another way of saying that, in my opinion, honesty is good. So I think it's, it's a measure of goodness in a sense. And then values basically just mean what do you think is good, if that is correct. I don't know. Would you agree with that or do you have another measure of values? 
I love hearing the descript people describe it, and I'm pretty agnostic at times to most of the definitions that people give because I think they all kind of are a triangulation of of often the, the same thing. Working in the coaching industry, coaches I know get very particular about the semantics of some of this stuff, which I I don't because I think I think the description you gave is is perfect and. I know in one of Dr. Schwartz's paper, he talks about just guiding principles. I know in his in his, his assessment, he talks about it as guiding principles in in your life, and and I think of that as is also good too. So, so yeah, I, I agree with your your definition. And so I think the function of of values is most importantly that they act like a moral heuristic that to increase well being, because I think that the ultimate value is always living a good life or maximizing long-term well-being. And then all other values just become instrumental so that they become means to the end of well-being in some form or another. What has it meant for you to have a high level of self-awareness around your values? I think it's vital for personal decision-making because whenever you make a decision, you need to be aware of what you actually want to achieve, why you want to achieve that, and how you can achieve it. It goes from from very small everyday decisions to larger life decisions. And just every decision is ultimately based on values because they provide the heuristic for you to make good decisions that will ultimately increase your well-being. You're spot on. That's one of the biggest things is how do we make better decisions in life? And this seems to be so fundamental to the decision-making process. Yes, it's, yet it's one of the things that we don't always get in some of our upbringing. Like we get when we're raised as children, you know, there's a number of value systems that are imparted on you. Some come from national education system, you know, good citizenry, liberty, justice for all, th- those types of things. Some of it may come from faith. If you come from a family of of faith. Some of it may just be imparted directly from your family. And and there are probably a, a few other systems out there where values are imparted onto to children to try to build their system. But I find for a lot of adults, you know, they've grown up with those things. They've told what they've been told what their values should be. And then they kind of go through this moment as an adult. Not everybody, but a lot of people go through this moment as an adult where you know, who am I? And I think it's a really interesting question for a lot of people is if we separate the value systems that have been imparted onto you through national education, faith, what, whatever the other systems are, how would you describe your own values? And sometimes that's hard for people to do because they've never even been prompted to think about it on their own. That creates a lot of the challenges we see sometimes in, in grown adults who are struggling with, you know, career, life, work, whatever, there's not enough self-awareness around what they want versus what, you know, some of the earlier value systems, you know, from school, faith, whatever, say that they should be doing. Do you think that there is something like uh, purely individual values so that I, as an individual, can have my very own values? Or would you say that they necessarily always have to arise from a specific social context. I don't think they have to arise from a, a specific social context. I think 
there is pressure to conform to a social context with whatever's imparted on someone at an early age. My thinking right now is that people do have their own individual values and that we do vary and differ in how we, you know, determine what we value. Though I know in Dr. Schwartz's work and his studies, you know, he's done a lot of, it's all been cross-cultural studies. So there are some values that have some, there's some trends in how we kind of assimilate values and groups in some of his work. I like to think that the values I have are individual to me in terms of my discovery of them and, and what they mean for me. Hmm, because actually, I'm not sure if, if I agree with that or if I have the same opinion, because I think that values themselves, they always, of course, they, they originate in, in our biology and our society or our evolution and, and civilization and how they interact with each other. But I think that one cannot really come up with one's own values, but one, one always inherits them from a specific upbringing or a specific social context or social identity. And then as you, you grow up and as you develop as a human being, you acquire more and more social identities. So you, you identify with different social groups and you have your family, you have your job environment, you have all different sorts of social environments. And all these environments have their own value system and their own ranking of values. And I think that what one means when one says that I have individual values is basically just kind of an intersection of all these values dependent on one's own social identities. So, so because everyone has their own unique social identities and from that they, they develop their own value system depending on, on how much emotionally attached they are to certain social groups. So if I'm very much attached to my family emotionally, then the values that are important within that family are probably higher in my ultimate ranking of values than another social group that I don't identify with as much from an emotional point of view. There's a concept that comes up from time to time around the values construct as well as the strengths construct, which has come up maybe more so on some of the work I've done with strengths and strengths-based development. This idea of nature versus nurture and how that influences one's development of their own individual values or strengths. Is it a function of nurture in terms of how we've been raised and brought up and conditioned to versus our own nature? And I, I don't know that I've ever seen any good research on that, but I'm curious what you, what you think about nature versus nurture. I think that is just impossible to disentangle because we always have, basically every human trait is always partly nature, partly nurture. But then there are also all these complex interactions between, for example, gene environment interactions and which genes get activated through which environmental factors and so forth. So I think that the interaction between nature and nurture is always so complex that it's practically impossible to really disentangle them, especially with something which is also quite complex as values. I agree. I mean, this question came up to me a few months ago in a workshop. And 
I'll be honest, I didn't know how to answer it. And so I had to go out and reach out to some other professionals on it. And I think it's sort of the conclusion we came to is what you just kind of articulated that they are entangled. But I do, on the other hand, understand what this question comes up so often. And I think that's because if the percentage of the nature factors, uh, nurture factors, is quite small, then this would mean that human beings cannot really be shaped much by cultural factors, cultural influences. And that would be more like a fatalistic view of, of human nature. And this would be quite devastating for people who want to have political changes in order to make humans better and stuff like that. So I think that's probably why the question always comes up because the people want to shape others. They want to make the world a better place. And for that to even work, you need to have, you need to have some sort of understanding, at least that it's possible that nurture affects humans on a significant level. So when I was reading your blog article on values, you list out kind of the order of, of your values. And, and you and I share the same value that's in the number one spot, freedom. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm curious, what does freedom mean for you? First and foremost is that I'm free in my thinking and doing. And with freedom in my thought, I also mean that I have to be really aware of my own cognitive biases, because if I'm just thinking based on yet yeah, a psychological makeup that I have, which of course I cannot really escape, but the more I am aware of my own cognitive biases, I think the more free I am in my thinking. And then of course, freedom in doing means that I do what, as I always say, do what, what I truly want to do rather than what I just want in the moment, which is often very strongly affected by impulses and emotions and so forth. If I'm just like a leaf in the wind that's going about as, as emotions come and go, then I would not describe myself as a free person. And then, of course, there's this whole political dimension as well, but that's actually secondary for me. But that's probably also because I live in, in a country that's very free, so I don't have to worry about that much about it. When you put freedom into action, you know, throughout your day, week, month, year, how does that manifest itself for you? Well, that's actually one word, and that's discipline, I would say. So this with discipline, I don't know if you, I'm aware of Chaka Willink, but he has this saying, discipline equals freedom. And I think that this is very true and a very good guiding principle for life. Tell us a little bit more about discipline equals freedom. I'm curious about it. Well, I'm now getting into waters that actually others have, have, have more authority to talk about. But if I have my discipline in check, if my will is strong enough to do what I actually set out to do, what I plan to do, then, I, then I'm on, on the path that is actually in line with my personal goals. And if I lose the power of my will or if I get distracted by emotions and impulses or temptations and whatever, then I'm actually getting off my path, my greater path. And that is what I see as uh, the opposite of liberating. I want to talk for a second about another concept you have on the blog and you mentioned in your mission statement and, and on your book as well, but about true will. And I love what you wrote, I think is the first 
first sentence on this, on your article titled, How to Live a Good Life, the most common cause of failure in life is ignorance of one's own true will or of the means to fulfill that will. And then you go on to say, a man whose conscious will is at odds with his true will is wasting his strength. And I really thought this is a wonderful, wonderful quote here. Can you share a little bit more about, about true will and will in general? The true will is, is a very broad and complex concept that I use in very, with very different meanings. The most important one, I think, is the idea of, of long-term versus short-term goals. Because whenever, for example, let's say I'm on a diet or whatever, and I don't want to eat any sugar. And then when the temptation comes to eat sugar, there's a complete shift in your mind that changes your actual goals at that very moment. And in that state, you actually want to eat sugar because you're tempted by your lust for sugar. And from a volitional perspective, you, you still have this will to eat sugar. But then there is the true will, which is more focused on the long term. And that tells you that you actually want to stay on your diet. So you have this, these two competing wills in a sense. And the true will is the one that is strengthened by willpower and that is focused or that helps you pursue your long term goals. And it's also related to the idea of second order volition. For example, when you're a, a heroin addict, then of course you want heroin because you're addicted to it. And in this very moment, you want to get another injection of, of heroin. But in terms of second order volition, do you want to be a person who's addicted to heroin? You would probably say, no, that's not what I truly want. And so the true will is also the sort of second order volition. In, in a third sense, uh, the true will is just always what maximizes well-being. So it maximizes my personal well-being. And then there's the collective true will, which is the maximization of the well-being of a certain social structure or group. I love this idea, this idea of will versus true will and you know, short-term versus long-term goals or fulfillment of, of one's life. And yet, I think for many people, the hardest part is navigating the will and the, 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 the space between the will and the, and, the, and the true will. You know, and I love this example of dieting and sugar. The will may want sugar right now, but the true will knows that maybe you want to be healthy long-term, and so the sugar right now is, is not good for you. In your view, how do people navigate this space you know, in, a, in a productive and successful way? Yeah, that's the force of willpower. So the more you exercise your willpower and the stronger your will grows, the more you can follow your true will rather than your impulsive will. This is great. This has been a wonderful conversation, Dominic. Absolutely. Yeah. So for the person that's out there listening and wants to continue to follow you and the wonderful work that you're doing, how can they keep up with you? Well, the best way is just to visit my blog, mindfulness.com. I'm also on social media, but I've automated that, that all, so I'm not really checking that out personally. So my blog, mindfulness.com. Um, but I've, I haven't really been active in the last few months because, as I said, now I'm working as a data scientist and this has all its own challenges. And I do, however, can plan to, again, publish content starting in spring. So 
March or so, then it will be more content out again. That's wonderful. Sounds great. So for all of our listeners, be sure to check out Dom's uh, website and all of his wonderful things that he's working on and in his book as well. I'm going to go check out his book on willpower, uh, given our discussion today. And thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Dom. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Discover Your Values podcast. Are you ready to explore your values and create your best life? Visit discoveryourvalues.com and download our workbook to begin your journey.